Due to the graphic nature of this story, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and violence. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Once upon a time, in a quaint English village, there lived a friendly old farmhand. Every morning, he greeted his neighbors with a tip of his hat. And yet, he preferred to keep to himself and commune with his other friends, who happened to be animals. That's right. Legend has it that birds flocked to his shoulders and chirped at him like he was Cinderella or Snow White. They weren't his only woodland companions. He also had a garden full of pet toads. Some local townspeople became suspicious of the old farmhand and his connection to the birds and toads. They didn't see it as an adorable affectation. As the story goes, to them, it was proof he was a warlock. And they were going to kill him. You may be surprised to hear this isn't a fairy tale from the Brothers Grimm or Hans Christian Andersen. To many, this story is real. The old farmhand was a man named Charles Walton, who lived in the mid-20th century. And he ended up dead in a gruesome murder that puzzled English police for decades. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on the mysterious death of Charles Walton. In 1945, the 74-year-old farmhand was killed in a quaint English village. Locals and detectives thought it was plausible that Walton was a warlock. Today, we're going to do things a little differently. We'll dive into the folklore tradition of Walton's hometown in Warwickshire, England. Then, we'll look at how his official life story became entwined with the region's legends. Next time, we'll examine the validity of Warwickshire's witchcraft fables, along with three other theories about Walton's death. He may have been sacrificed in an occult ritual, or perhaps someone close to him bore a murderous grudge. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. 
If you're interested in crazy stories from the wild world of organized crime, scams, gangs, cartels, mafias, drug dealers, and everything fun like that, have we got a podcast for you. The Underworld Podcast is hosted by two conflict journalists, Danny Gold and Sean Williams, who have reported on all sorts of dangerous people in dangerous places. Every week, they bring you a new episode on international organized crime from a new corner of the globe. You can find the Underworld Podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Scotland Yard. Those two words strike fear into the hearts of criminals across England. They're synonymous with the best detectives in the world. Shrewd, analytical minds that can solve any case. In the mid-1900s, one of the Yard's most famous investigators was Chief Inspector Robert Fabian. He made a name for himself cracking the toughest mysteries, busting London's most corrupt mobsters, and catching wily cat burglars. The public dubbed him the reincarnation of Sherlock Holmes, an extremely high honor. But there was one case that truly stumped Fabian, the murder of Charles Walton. Years after an exhaustive investigation, the famous detective penned his 1950 memoir, Fabian of the Yard. In it, he made a shocking announcement. He believed something unexpected may have played a role in Walton's homicide, witchcraft. He wasn't the only one to write about Walton's mysterious death. Many out-of-print books about the occult have detailed the killing, some accurate, some not. Journalist Simon Reed's The Case That Boiled Fabian pulled them together and examined their validity, comparing them with details from the Scotland Yard case files. We'll be leaning on those two main sources to present this story to you and to examine what Walton's life and death really were like. The old farmhand's connection to the supernatural may have origins in his early childhood. We don't have a lot of details about Walton's youth, but here's what we do know. In 1870, Walton was born to Charles Sr. and Emma in a village in Warwickshire County, nearly 200 miles from London. It's unclear what Walton's parents did for a living, but they raised the boy and his three older sisters in the small town. Small town is an understatement. At the time of his death, it had a population of only 493 people. It's possible that number was even lower when Walton was born. With so few residents, we don't know if there was a school nearby or how Walton was educated. But like many kids in small villages, he likely learned local history from word of mouth including the local superstitions. And believe me, there were many. Of course, we've all heard of don't step on a crack or you'll break your mother's back and don't cross a black cat. 
but Warwickshire had some unique superstitious beliefs. In the 1930s, an English clergyman named Harvey Bloom recorded as many as he could find in a book called Folklore, Old Customs and Superstitions in Shakespeare Land. Some of the noteworthy ones included feather beds shouldn't be used on deathbeds. They apparently prolonged the dying person's suffering. And according to Bloom's book, locals insisted on washing their babies upstairs and taking them downstairs immediately, or else the child would die. The superstition didn't indicate how the infant would pass away. But for folks like the people of Warwickshire, better to be safe than sorry. It was pretty dark stuff for a child to learn, and that wasn't all that shaped young Walton's psychology. There was also the creepy landscape. A mile from Walton's village, an ancient grassy knoll was called Meon Hill. Standing 637 feet tall, it's not a mountain by any stretch of the imagination, but its hulking silhouette towers over the countryside. According to local folklore, the hill had a metaphysical origin. Supposedly, the devil attacked a nearby church by throwing a clump of clay at it and missed. That lump became Meon Hill, meaning the townspeople believe the devil himself made it by accident. It's even said Neon Hill inspired J.R.R. Tolkien's mystical hill, Weathertop, in the Lord of the Rings saga. Not far from Neon Hill stood the Rollwright Stones, a group of mysterious weathered obelisks nestled right along the edge of Warwickshire. The stones were purported to be an ancient burial ground, as well as an old lookout spot against invaders. According to rumors, they were also used in witchcraft ceremonies. One local myth contended a witch turned a king and his army into the stones. The legend claimed if someone could break the spell, the ruler and his men would be released from their rocky prisons. That may seem far-fetched to you and me, but in 1870s Warwickshire, it likely felt real, especially to a child. When Walton was five years old, a local newspaper reported one-third of the area's villagers believed in witchcraft. Which is no surprise, especially because that same year, a murder in a neighboring town shocked everyone. On September 15, 1875, around 8 p.m., 80-year-old Anne Tennant left her stone cottage to buy bread. It was an errand she'd likely run hundreds of times. But this time, when she arrived at the market, a 44-year-old farmer named James Haywood marched up to her. In his hands, he held a pitchfork, a sharp, four-pronged farming tool. Out of nowhere, he yelled, accusing Tennant of being a witch. Before she or anyone else could respond, Haywood plunged the pitchfork into Tennant's hands and legs, right in front of everyone. Tennant's family and neighbors could hear her screams from their homes. They rushed out to help the old woman and carried her back to her home, where she died three hours later. Meanwhile, still in the market, Haywood confessed to his crime, likely while still holding the bloodied murder weapon. 
Three months later, in December 1875, Haywood stood trial for Tennant's murder. According to court transcripts, Haywood said, I'm sorry I hurt the woman, but she tormented me for a long time in witchcraft. Of course, the prosecution questioned Haywood's mental health. At one point, they presented evidence that Haywood believed other older women gave him the so-called evil eye, too. Ultimately, the jury found Haywood not guilty by reason of insanity. Haywood seemingly interpreted this as a vindication. He issued a warning to the village. There were 15 more witches. He vowed to kill every single one. The violent murder and the subsequent town gossip likely impacted the young Charles Walton. Imagine being a five-year-old and hearing witches and warlocks lived nearby. There's a strong chance Walton was scared, or at the very least, dangerously curious. It may have been the latter because, according to rumors, young Walton snuck out of his house one night. He trekked 12 miles to Warwickshire's Rollwright Stones. It's unclear what he did there, but for all we know, it may have been the moment that changed his life forever. Because soon, Walton became part of the region's folklore himself. Up next, Charles Walton encounters a harbinger of death. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life, at least not the ones you're thinking of, but they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home, like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of bug it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. And with over 95 years of experience, it's no wonder they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. Now back to the story. According to local legend, in 1885, 15-year-old Charles Walton had his first brush with the supernatural. The story was included in two seminal volumes about rural English folklore. Harvey Bloom's Folklore, Old Customs, and Superstition in Shakespeare Land, and Simon Reed's book, The Case That Foiled Fabian. Bloom wrote that, according to the locals he interviewed, someone named Charles Walton worked as a farm boy in the field surrounding mysterious Meon Hill. One day, on his way home, he came across a black dog. The encounter was odd for a couple reasons. First, there wasn't any farmhouse for miles, but the dog seemed a little too comfortable there. Walton likely looked for its owner, but didn't find anyone. Second, after growing up in superstitious Warwickshire, Walton likely wondered if this was a regular dog or an omen. See, according to Simon Reed's tome about Walton, in English folklore, black dogs are as connected to the supernatural as black cats. In fact, they're considered one of the most portentous symbols in all of England. 
They were omens of death. Reed explained nearly every English county has a local story connecting the canine with witchcraft and devil worship. England's most famous ghost pup was called Black Shuck, a demon dog with either red or green eyes, depending on the specific legend. Many folks claimed Black Shuck haunted cemeteries, remote county roads, and the hills around the small villages, exactly where Walton was standing. Walton may have thought this was Black Shuck, and the dog was bringing a message. Someone was going to die. Walton alerted his boss about the dog, but the old shepherd simply laughed at him. He may have thought the young farmhand was pulling his chain, or perhaps it was a nearby farmer's canine who'd roamed too far from home. But the next evening, Walton saw the black dog again, in exactly the same spot, and it happened every night afterward for over a week. If you've ever owned or encountered a dog, you know keeping them in one spot can be a challenge, even if there's food or treats involved. But in Walton's case, there was no sign of either. Yet he was in the same place, night after night. Even more bizarre, something, or someone, accompanied the dog on the ninth day. This time, the eerie black canine was joined by a woman in a silk dress. At first, Walton may have been relieved that the dog had found its owner. But even from a distance, he noticed there was something strange, even eerie about the lady. As he approached, he realized what was wrong. She didn't have a head. Now Walton realized his boss had been wrong. This wasn't any ordinary dog. It truly was an omen. Naturally, Walton was so scared, he ran home and told his parents. As the story goes, the next day, one of Walton's three sisters died. Imagine your 15-year-old Charles Walton growing up with rumors and stories of witches. You encounter a black demon dog and a headless woman. Then, your sister mysteriously passes away. You wouldn't blame him for concluding that witches were real, that he was living amongst them. This tragic moment may have marked a turning point for Walton. Locals would later remark that the creepy visions and his sister's death made him spend the rest of his life as a recluse. But according to Simon Reed's book, that was never proven, and the facts don't seem to support that conclusion. In fact, no records indicate any of his sisters died in 1885. Many details about his adulthood are also fuzzy, but here's what we know for sure. Throughout the rest of the late 1800s and into the early 1900s, Walton remained in Warwickshire, working as a hired hand on people's farms. He married a woman named Isabella, and the couple seemingly spent their years together quietly without children. But around 1915, a three-year-old girl showed up on their doorstep. It was Walton's niece, Edith. Her mother had just passed away. The rest of the details are unclear, and we don't know what happened to the rest of Edith's family, but somehow Walton and his wife took Edith in and gave her a place to live. 
For a time, they may have been a happy little family, but tragedy would strike again. Twelve years later, in 1927, Walton's wife died. He didn't remarry. And yet, Walton didn't live completely alone either. Edith, who was now 15 years old, became his housekeeper. He paid her a small sum for her work, just a pound, but she didn't mind because she liked to keep her uncle company. According to Reed's book, Edith later described Walton as a friendly and happy guy who enjoyed his simple life. He wasn't into staying out late at bars or drinking to excess. It seemed the rest of the community agreed. According to multiple accounts, they thought Walton was nice, but quirky. That might be an understatement. According to a case study cited in Reed's book, townspeople noted Walton apparently chirping at nightingales and other birds. One neighbor claimed Walton said he spoke the avian language, and the birds did as he instructed. Meaning Walton supposedly talked to birds and controlled them. And often, people who control animals go by another name, witches and warlocks. Take this account from Reed's book. Reportedly, Walton simply had to point a finger and birds would fly to the spot he'd indicated. And winged creatures weren't the only animals he seemed to have power over. Walton also bred a rare amphibian, the Natterjack Toad. The Natterjack Toad is famous for two notable attributes. It has a yellow stripe on its back, and instead of hopping, it runs. That's why some people nicknamed it the Running Toad. Like many toads, the Natterjack's skin is poisonous to the touch, if you can even find one. The species prefers to burrow in marshy coastal areas, sand dunes, and ponds, which England and Ireland have plenty of. So the Natterjack is mostly native to those two countries. But again, in Walton's world, just as dogs weren't always dogs, a toad wasn't always just a toad. Witches are apparently fond of Natterjack toads. The reason why was explained in yet another folktale. According to the English magazine Country Life, people thought Satan visited the earth disguised as the toad. After all, it was literally poisonous to the touch. As the story goes, the devilish amphibian hid in churchyards, waiting for unsuspecting parishioners to notice them. When religious folks saw the amphibian, they gave it a piece of bread from Holy Communion. While the toad ate, it turned the local congregants into witches. This legend was more than a folktale in Walton's community. The way the locals saw it, Walton's obsession with toads was cause for alarm. And perhaps one of his neighbors decided it was time to stop Walton from practicing black magic permanently. Up next, Charles Walton's days are numbered. Now back to the story. Sometime in the early 1900s, Charles Walton bred Natterjack toads. Not only did the poisonous creatures run eerily fast, they were also rumored to be used in occult spells. This may be why Walton's amphibians scared his neighbors. 
Even his boss speculated about his employees' supernatural activities. According to Reed's book, British journalist Donald McCormick interviewed Walton's supervisor. The farmer, who wished to remain anonymous, claimed Walton used the toads for an evil spell. Apparently, he saw Walton take one of the Natterjack toads and tie it to a miniature version of a farming plow. Then, Walton made the amphibian run across the field with it. On the surface, it's a quirky anecdote about Walton having fun with his pets. But in Warwickshire, nothing unusual or outside the norm could be wholly innocent. In fact, according to Reed's book, the story of Walton's toad plowing the field wasn't an isolated incident. Apparently, witches pulled stunts like this all the time. The most famous instance happened in the 1600s. A Scottish sorceress named Isabel Gowdy allegedly tied a toad to a similar tiny plow and made it run across a field. According to the legend, the result was devastating. The land turned completely barren. This magical practice even had a name. It was called blasting. And that's what Walton's boss accused him of doing, blasting the crops. But it's unclear why Walton would do that. The farms were his livelihood, too. Even so, in the BBC documentary, The Power of the Witch, it's pointed out the local harvest suffered in the 1940s. We don't know how bad it got, but 1944 was possibly the worst year. Afterward, rumors began spreading again. This time, townspeople are said to have blamed the crop's failure on 74-year-old Walton and his toads. The neighbors had always thought Walton was a peculiar guy, but this might have been the first time they labeled him as a warlock. To you or me, it may seem like an extreme reaction, but what if, in your small town, everyone's livelihoods were destroyed? What if it felt like a matter of life or death? And you thought one person was behind it. In that case, blaming Walton might feel like the only solution, and labeling him a warlock could make him the target of witch hunters. Apparently, witch hunters have operated in rural England for centuries. In 1645, Parliament even made it an official government position. They appointed a staunch Puritan named Michael Hopkins as the first Witchfinder General. Hopkins traveled the English countryside, hunting for evidence of the occult and its practitioners. Evidence suggests he mostly targeted women, not men or warlocks. But that doesn't mean he wasn't looking at guys like Walton. Two years after his appointment, Hopkins died of an illness, likely tuberculosis. But that didn't put an end to the UK tradition of witch hunting. In fact, court-sanctioned executions were still taking place 40 years later. And even though Parliament officially abolished witch trials in 1736, it's possible that in the late 1800s, vigilante witch hunters still roam through Warwickshire. Remember earlier we learned about James Haywood, who murdered Anne Tennant because he thought she was a sorceress. He was a self-proclaimed witch hunter. The news of Walton cursing the farmland might have drawn the attention of more official professionals. 
Perhaps they thought he needed to be stopped. As for Walton, he just went about his business as usual. In 1945, in spite of his arthritis and sciatica, the 74-year-old continued to work on other people's farms. Sometimes the pain was bad enough that he had to use a walking stick. On the worst days, his new boss, former Alfred John Potter, let Walton skip shifts. This happened often during the winter. But on February 14, 1945, the damp and overcast weather didn't deter Walton. According to Reed's account, the old man felt well enough to go to work. Walton pulled on two flannel shirts, knitted socks, and a tweed jacket to insulate himself from the frigid English winter. Once he was dressed, he went downstairs to greet his niece, Edith, in the kitchen. They shared their usual breakfast, two pieces of toast and a cup of coffee. Walton and Edith may have talked about her new job as a typesetter at the Royal Society of Arts. She was headed there after breakfast. As Walton finished his toast and coffee, Edith packed Walton's usual lunch, a piece of cake. Yes, really. And by 8.30 a.m., Walton was out the front door and headed to Alfred Potter's farm. To get there, he trudged across a churchyard to the field. When he arrived at the farm, he spent the day trimming hedges. It wasn't an easy task. It required swinging a hedging fork, which was a long, sharp blade with a handle on the end. Walton rarely took the tool home with him because it was so dangerous. Around noon that day, Walton's boss, Potter, ventured out to the field to cut hay. On the way, he saw Walton hard at work in the distance, trimming the hedges. It seemed like any other normal day. Around 6 p.m., Edith came home from her new job. Like most evenings, she likely took off her coat and called her uncle's name. When he didn't respond, she walked around the house, but there was no sign of Walton at all. Edith thought it was odd that he wasn't home yet. He usually headed straight back after work instead of stopping by the pub like many of the other villagers. After all, with his arthritis, it was hard to get around, especially at night in the darkness. So Edith knew something was very wrong. Within minutes, Edith had hurried to their neighbor's house where Harry Beasley lived. She asked if he'd seen Walton. Beasley hadn't, so he agreed to help search for the old man. He grabbed a flashlight and led the way into the freezing cold night. Together, they both retraced Walton's steps through the churchyard to Potter's farm. They searched the pasture, calling Walton's name. There was no answer. And no sign of him anywhere. Edith grew more and more concerned by the minute. She knew something terrible had happened to Walton. She wasn't sure what. Still, there was no sign of him anywhere. Once they'd exhausted all the most obvious places Walton could be, they decided to locate Potter, Walton's boss. Around 6.15 p.m., they knocked on Potter's door. When he answered, Edith explained the situation and asked which hedge Walton had worked on that day. Potter led Edith and Beasley to where he'd seen Walton earlier. There, they spotted something. In the distance, in a corner of the pasture, 
Potter and Beasley noticed a shadowy heap. Walton's body. Potter and Beasley tried to stop Edith from seeing the horrible sight, but it was too late. She let out an ear-piercing scream. Beasley comforted Edith while Potter sent a farm worker to call the police. Then Potter took a closer look at Walton's body. He was lying on the ground with blood covering his face. He'd been stabbed in his neck and face by a two-pronged pitchfork. The sharp tool now pinned his head to the ground. Plus, Walton's pruning blade had been plunged into his neck and may have slashed his throat several times. Nearly an hour later at 7.05 p.m., Warwick County Constable Michael Lamasney arrived at the farm. Potter directed him to Walton's body. Lamasney and his team examined Walton and the scene for several minutes. They concluded whoever did this didn't want Walton to survive. The pitchfork's prongs were wedged too deeply in the ground for this to be an accident. It was a murder. Three and a half yards away, one of Walton's walking sticks lay in the field, covered in blood and hair. Lamasney theorized the old man must have used the cane to defend himself. A murder was afoot. But this case was likely bigger than Lamasney and his fellow Warwickshire police could handle. As Reed noted in his book, at the time, many small English town police forces didn't have trained detectives. So the next day, on February 15, 1945, Warwickshire's chief constable, E.R.B. Kemble, requested backup. He wired his appeal to London's Metropolitan Police Headquarters, otherwise known as Scotland Yard. Information about Walton's murder landed on the desk of the best detective on the force, 44-year-old Chief Inspector Robert Honey Fabian. Fabian was already a legend and an icon, like his childhood idol, the fictional detective Sherlock Holmes. He'd worked his way up through the ranks, closing the toughest cases. The street-smart officer had caught notorious English cat burglar Robert Augustus Delaney and raided seedy Soho nightclubs filled with mobsters. Fabian credited his success to his unique skill. He could see perspectives of the many underworld criminals he arrested. Naturally, people called him the reincarnation of Sherlock Holmes. That was a tough reputation to live up to, but Fabian tried his best, even though he was well into his career. By this point, he'd pretty much seen it all when it came to crime. Or so he thought. When Fabian heard of a death in Warwickshire, he likely assumed it was another run-of-the-mill case, perhaps a domestic disturbance or a farming accident. But as the commander described the murder, Fabian was stunned by Walton's brutal injuries. He needed to find out who'd attack a human being with a pitchfork and a pruning knife. So the next day, February 16th, Fabian assembled a small team of detectives and boarded a train to the English countryside. Even though he'd always been a proponent of logic, science, and evidence, Fabian couldn't help acknowledging Walton's death was unlike any he had ever seen. And once his investigation began, Fabian had to wonder if it was indeed tied 
to witchcraft. Next time, we'll discuss three conspiracy theories about Charles Walton's murder. Like conspiracy theory number one, Charles Walton really was a witch. And conspiracy theory number two, Walton's killer practiced the occult and murdered the old man for a ritual involving human sacrifice. And finally, conspiracy theory number three, that Walton's own boss, Alfred Potter, killed his employee over a dispute about money. We'll look into whether any of these Warwickshire rumors were true. Or if reality was far grimmer than we imagine. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back next time with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. For more information on this case, we found Simon Reed's The Case That Foiled Fabian, Murder and Witchcraft in Rural England, and James Harvey Bloom's Folklore, Old Customs and Superstitions in Shakespeare Land, extremely helpful to our research. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from Parcast, executive produced by Max Cutler. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and quality control by Lisa Marie Gallegos. Ryan O'Leary-Jones is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Mallory Cara, edited by Adam DeSilva and Angela Jorgensen, fact-checked by Cheyenne Lopez, researched by Sapphire Williams, produced by Josh Kern, with sound design by Carrie Murphy. Our hosts are Carter Roy and me, Molly Brandenburg.